gamers are discovering COVID treatment options. Are preprints the equivalent of fake news? Let's debunk the COVID hemoglobin myth. And do labor laws protect employee posts on social media? Hi, and welcome to the show. Today is April 13th, 2020, and I'm Dr. Michael Zagoda for the Spiral Podcast. Greg Fornia from Temple University writes in an article for Tech Explorer where he shares that researchers around the world are working at an unprecedented speed and scale to understand the coronavirus, develop a vaccine, and discover new drugs to treat COVID-19. Now, citizens already doing their part to stop the virus's spread through social distancing and other measures can also help develop new therapeutics by running simulations on their computers. Performing scientific calculations by coordinating and distributing the work across thousands of separate computers is called distributed computing. Along with graduate students in his lab, Associate Professor of Chemistry Vincent Voles has been working with an international team of researchers to computationally screen potential inhibitors of the coronavirus's main protease, an attractive target for new antiviral drugs. And they're using the distributed computing network called Folding at Home to do it. Folding, the program, refers to the process by which a protein structure assumes its shape so that it can perform its biologic functions. Dr. Voles shares how his group uses the tools in molecular simulation and statistical mechanics basically to determine the structure and function of the biomolecules. From there, it's a quick jump from that work to using his expertise in biomolecular simulation to help fight COVID-19. For the coronavirus research, Voles is partnering with researchers at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center and uh, Diamond Light Source, which Diamond Light Source is an X-ray crystallography group out of the UK. Diamond Light Source has done groundbreaking work in solving more than a thousand different crystal structures of the coronavirus's main protease and discovering several drug fragments that can potentially bind to sites on that protein. The way it works is the basic principle of supply chain disruption. This is what the drugs are designed to do. When the virus gets inside a cell, it co-ops the machinery of the cell to assemble more copies of itself and replicate. If you can inhibit the protease, you can inhibit the necessary step in the virus's life cycle and thereby keep it from multiplying. To do this requires a massive amount of computing power. The combined computing power of Folding at Home's thousands of users is being used to virtually screen a huge number of potential drug compounds. These simulations will help prioritize which molecules will be synthesized and analyzed by researchers aiming to rapidly develop new therapies against the coronavirus. In early March, there were about 30,000 users who had already downloaded the Folding at Home software and were active participants in the COVID-19 project. Now, as at least April 1st, there were more than 1 million people participating. Combined, this project is now the largest supercomputer in the world and that gamers, who have the most powerfully computational consumer computers by far, is the largest group contributing to that project. Dr. Voles claims that they have broken the exaflop barrier, meaning that they are performing the operations per second that is the equivalent of 10 times the computing power of the world's fastest supercomputer. According to Dr. Voles, the speed of the coronavirus's spread around the world has inspired many researchers to remove hurdles in how scientific knowledge is developed, analyzed, and shared. What we see now is how scientific organizations are sharing information in an unprecedented way, and people around the world are banding together to solve a very difficult problem, says Vols. 
Folding at home is a kind of citizen slash, say, crowdsourcing science and is potentially extremely powerful. However, we also need to keep in mind just how dangerous it can be as well. We're about to talk about that next. In academic publishing, a preprint is a version of a scholarly or scientific paper that precedes, say, a formal peer review, and then publication in, say, a peer-reviewed scholarly or scientific journal. So in other words, this is a preprint that has not been reviewed by anybody yet. The preprint may be available, often as a non-typeset version available for free, before and or even after the paper is published in a journal. A preprinted manuscript was submitted to the New England Journal of Medicine and was subsequently leaked before being peer-reviewed. The problem with this is that it was leaked with the New England Journal of Medicine logo and gave every impression that it was an authoritative presentation of data. The manuscript was entitled, quote, Clinical Outcomes of Hydroxychloroquine in Hospitalized Patients with COVID-19, colon, a quasi-randomized comparative study, end quote. Well, as soon as I read quasi-randomized comparative study, I doubted the New England Journal would publish it. But in these uncertain times, you never know. I still don't know if this manuscript is real or if it will be published. Stanford researchers discussed the benefits and perils of science without peer review. Science moving forward without traditional forms of peer review could shorten the path to solutions, but it also increases the chances that low-quality science gets overhyped. Taylor Kubota writes for Stanford, describing how biomedical researchers that want to publish in a high-quality journal, their research must first withstand review by several outside experts. These peer reviewers judge the quality of the research, ask questions, and then offer critique. In order to share findings and gain collaborations, many researchers are now publishing their COVID-19 research on pre-print servers. Unlike journal papers, preprints do not undergo peer review before publication. When it comes to COVID-19 research, that conventional model has been upended. The urgent need for immediate solutions to COVID-19 pandemic has led medical researchers to favor a different form of publishing called preprints. Full articles made publicly available before passing the gauntlet of peer review. It's a great way to get preliminary results out and shared with a wider community, which can encourage collaboration and speed up the science, says Russ Altman at Stanford University. Of course, he goes on to say, the negative is that it's not peer reviewed, so people have to remember that what they're reading might actually be slightly, or totally, wrong, end quote. The main advantages of preprints are speed and open access. Whereas traditional publishing can take many months, posting a preprint is an instant way to share findings with colleagues and maybe stake a claim on some new insights. Preprints are also freely available to the public. In contrast to journal articles, which are usually hidden behind paywalls, used responsibly, preprints have the potential to accelerate and improve research, inspiring collaboration, and even sharing failures or negative results that might never make it to the pages of a journal and protect others from repeating those same errors. Everyone is realizing how this ability that we've developed really only in the past few years is an amazing tool for disseminating knowledge, says Tim Stearns, the chair of the biology department at the School of Humanities and Sciences at Stanford. On the other hand, as many labs pivot to preparing COVID-19 research in hopes of fast-tracking potentially life-saving science, there is also potential for wider dissemination of poor quality work. Then, there's what appears to be the works of misfeasance, one of which we're going to talk about in our next segment. The one even tricked me enough to entertain its claims. Preprints are part of a broader and accelerating movement called open science that actually aims to make scientific research 
not only the final publications, but also the data, samples, and software, public, transparent, and accessible. This open source science is a concept that has been embraced by many thought leaders from Silicon Valley. Remember, Elon Musk's hypertunnel started out as a white paper, and many of the schematics for Tesla's electric motors are actually open source. So the idea of open source of ideas instead of ownership of intellectual property is not new and is actually believed to rapidly advance innovation. But it also has its own pitfalls. Preprints exist within an internet ecosystem that includes other open access websites. So an eye-catching preprint can actually launch real-time discussion among colleagues and oftentimes the public is privy to the conversation. The online dialogue can resemble a more formal peer review process and lead to improvements in the paper and launch uh, further future collaborations. However, non-experts are just as able to see, comment on, and disperse preprints with mixed consequences. Academic review of preprints estimate that there are now, say, thousands of preprints published about the novel coronavirus and COVID-19 in just the last few months. I just read today that JAMA had over 2,000 submissions of manuscripts in the last month. They only accepted 60. Let's assume everybody has the best motives. They're just being a little bit eager. But there's too much stuff now. I'm on a Telegram chat, and very bright, conscientious physicians are posting publications to a Google Drive folder. So these are peer-reviewed articles. They have further passed the, quote, my colleague thinks it's worth reading, so I should read it test. That folder is so full now that if I were to read and scrutinize every article as I was trained to do, the COVID-19 crisis would have been long over. These are peer-reviewed articles. Imagine how many articles are available that have not been peer-reviewed, but are out there for public consumption. The medical and scientific community are barely tolerating this for now because we want as much information as we can get. We want it here. We want it now. We want it to fight COVID-19. But what about after COVID-19? Right now, everyone's attention is on COVID-19, but there will be a time when that's no longer the case. Once that happens, will science return to more formal means of communication, collaboration, and publishing? I guess we'll see. There are many other unsolved diseases besides COVID-19, and a lot of these problems require coordination, timely dissemination of information, and public attention, and will require discussion within the medical and scientific communities, but also discussion with the public, ethicists, and even policymakers. So, I think preprints will continue to play a big role beyond the current pandemic. Preprints are potentially disruptive to peer-reviewed printed articles, too. I was just part of a large group of authors on a consensus statement about bronchoscopy in the COVID era. The journal that accepted the manuscript after peer review required a $13-plus-hundred-dollar payment just to publish it. What if an author did not have access to that kind of money? Well, now they're just going to publish it on a preprint server. In order for preprints to earn a secure place among traditional routes of science dissemination, other aspects of professional and academic science will need to change first. If the medical and scientific publication community does not come up with a way to deal with the preprint servers, then, in my opinion, the integrity of available research is going to decline rapidly. I liken quality peer review articles to say something we all know about. Think of it as Netflix. There's a lot of good options to watch, and there's also a lot of garbage. But everything on there went through some type of vetting process. The preprint server releases? Those are more like TikTok videos. I want to stay in that same vein for a second. 
on a website entitled Blunt Force Truth, an article entitled, quote, COVID-19 had us all fooled, but now we might have finally found its secret, end quote. It's now actually out there available for public consumption. It was actually a blog post, but it was first put on a website called medium.com. It has since been deleted. But before it was deleted, it almost got me. I read the article and believing myself to be a reasonable scientist having two years of Ben's research experience before I ever went to medical school, I took the article at face value. It was written in an authoritative way and its claims were backed up by what I thought was reasonable sources. However, thanks to Matthew Amdahl, MD, PhD, he has corrected my thinking and saved me from any public embarrassment from actually disseminating this fake news to my colleagues. Let me take a minute to give you a quick lowdown. Dr. Amdahl's explanations are apparently technical, and he specializes in human hemoglobin for his PhD. So he has spent years studying specifically the exact thing that this other article was speaking to. He intimately understands the workings of hemoglobin in relationship to oxygen carrying capacity. I highly recommend his article also published on Medium.com, entitled COVID-19, Debunking the Hemoglobin Story. I'll be sharing some experts from that article today, but to get the full scope of his debunking, I really do recommend you have a full read of that article. But back to the post. The Medium blog post in question simultaneously puts forth two related narratives, one that's scientific or at least presented to give that appearance, and the other one is clinical. Both are told with an overriding tone of authority and certainty. Unfortunately, both are almost entirely incorrect in their overall conclusions and the specific details used to support those conclusions. As is so often the case, refuting this sort of misinformation requires a good deal more effort and words than actually propagating it, but we have done our best to address everything. The blog post, quote, scientific, end quote, narrative begins with SARS-CoV-2 virus entering a red blood cell. Once inside the red blood cell, the post states that the virus rapidly removes the iron from the red blood cell hemoglobin molecules, leading to, one, depletion of functional hemoglobin with the virus bound to its porphyrin ring, and, two, accumulation of toxic iron in the bloodstream. All of the clinical manifestations of COVID-19 are, therefore, subsequently attributed to this process, despite the fact that there's effectively no evidence to support such a mechanism of viral entry into red blood cells and interaction with, say, even hemoglobin. Alarmingly, the blog post relies on a series of assumptions that have little to no support with the current scientific literature. Blog post author presumes that the virus does enter red blood cells and that viral, quote, glycoproteins, quote, bond to the heme, and in doing so, that special and toxic oxidative iron ion is, quote, disassociated, which also means released. This, this spurious claim, for which the blog post author provides absolutely no evidence, seems to have derived its data from a misrepresentation of a recent preprint of a paper in ChemRxIV. This preprint manuscript, well, here we have an example of a preprint manuscript entering mainstream medical consumption. Anyways, this preprint manuscript proposes a possible mechanism for the virus to, quote, attack a term they never really define, but they attack the, quote, hemoglobin and release the heme from the protein. While the blog post author does not cite the work at all, or any other work for that matter, the conclusions and language are similar enough that it seems very likely the scientific paper actually inspired the blog post. 
on a close reading of the ChemRxiv paper in and of itself is seriously fouled and provides absolutely nothing that I or, or even my colleagues would consider meaningful evidence of a mechanism by which SARS-CoV-2 could, quote, attack hemoglobin. Nevertheless, the Medium blog post seems to take this questionable work as hard truth and proceeds to extend the conclusion several steps further, claiming that the virus will go right into the heme pocket and replace the intact heme iron, all while the porphyrin remains bound to the protein. Beyond the questionable evidence for virus binding the porphyrin at all, the issue here is that the heme porphyrin molecule is still in the heme pocket, a space barely large enough for two atom molecules like oxygen. Despite that, the blog post author seems to believe the virus, which is larger than the entire hemoglobin protein, will be able to enter and squeeze into that little pocket, kick out the iron, and bind the porphyrin while leaving the porphyrin and protein otherwise totally intact. To put it charitably, this would be an entirely novel and seemingly impossible sort of chemistry, and there is absolutely no scientific evidence that supports such a possibility. It's this seemingly impossible interaction that forms the entire foundation of the blog post's entire argument, and so the remainder of the conclusions drawn by the blogger simply do not carry any weight. Look, I don't know if this blog post was the pontification of somebody with a science background or a purposeful attempt to spread disinformation to actually cause harm. I don't know. What I do know is that many of the assumptions made in this post are from pre-printed manuscripts and is an excellent example of how important it is to protect the integrity of our research pipeline. After I shared this article with a friend that also studies hemoglobinopathies in sickle cell patients, she said, oh, by the way, I have a large bridge for sale in Manhattan. No one's using it anymore because of COVID-19, so if you want it, I can sell it to you cheap. Someone looking out for you, you look out for them. Like I did two weeks of shows out of town in December, and when I came home, my wife informed me that she made me an appointment for the gastroenterologist. <laughs> if you're unfamiliar, that's the doctor that sticks the camera up your butt. I mean, they do other things, but that's what they're famous for. That's probably how they attract people to the field. You like photography? I got a job you're gonna love. I didn't ask my wife to set up this appointment. I wasn't sick, I didn't have any symptoms. She just did it because she was looking out for me. So she casually brought it up. She goes, just so you know, I made you an appointment for the gastroenterologist. And I said, just so you know, I won't be going. She was like, why wouldn't you go? It's just a consultation. I said, well, it's the principle. I'm an adult. I make my own decisions. Thank you. Anyway, so I'm at the gastroenterologist. <laughs> the doctor starts to describe the procedure. And I said, look, I should probably let you know, I don't really enjoy getting my picture taken. <laughs> I would be open to an ultrasound. I think a lot of men are curious what the jelly on the belly feels like. <laughs> Anyway, the doctor, he didn't think it was funny. <laughs> but in February, I had the procedure, and I think every man in here should get a colonoscopy, because I had to. <laughs> it's not an easy decision, because the best news you can find out from getting a camera stuck up your butt is learning you didn't need to have a camera stuck up your butt. <laughs> That's the best news. Yeah, we didn't need to do that. 
we can just chalk that up one for fun. An emergency room doctor who publicly criticized the coronavirus preparations at his hospital in Washington state has recently been fired for his Facebook posts. Dr. Ming Lin, he's an ER doctor at Peace Health St. Joseph's Medical Center in Bellingham, Washington for about the last 17 years, told the Associated Press that he had been fired for a Facebook post. On Facebook, as well as in media interviews, Dr. Lin has repeatedly criticized what he saw as a sluggish response to the threat by the hospital's administration. According to his posts, Lin insisted that the hospital was slow to screen visitors, negligent in not testing staff, wrong to rely on a company that was taking 10 days to process COVID test results, and derelict in obtaining protective equipment for staff. Strong words. Slow. Negligent. Derelict. He described taking steps to help the hospital obtain cots and personal protective gear being offered by local companies, efforts that garnered him a loyal local following. But he said also brought him warnings from superiors to stop speaking out and eventually led to him no longer being able to work at St. Joseph's Medical Center. So the question is this, is it legal to be fired for a Facebook post? Do workers have rights? Or maybe it's even protected under the First Amendment. Lisa Guerin, an attorney that specializes in employment law and government and in the public interest, writes for NOLO.com, and she discusses how labor laws protect employee posts and social media. These days, most people who are working age have some kind of online presence, whether it takes the form of, say, a personal Twitter feed, MySpace, no one uses MySpace, or LinkedIn account, or Facebook page, or post comments and reviews on products, news articles, company websites, or other people's social media pages, right? It's not too hard for employers to find you online. But what can they do with that information once they discover it? That's still up in the air. Are there any protections for what you post? There are a handful of potential protections for employees who post, including state laws that protect employees from discrimination based on their off-duty conduct, political opinions, or religious beliefs. Lately, however, employees have received the strongest protection from the Federal National Labor Relations Board, also called the NLRB. They have determined that labor laws prohibit employers from firing or even disciplining employees for certain job-related posts. However, it must fall under something called concerted activity. So what is this concerted or protected concerted activity? Well, federal labor laws, which generally regulate the relationship among employees, unions, and management, protect employees who engage in the concerted activity to, say, increase their pay, improve working conditions, or resolve other workplace problems. Employees are protected whether or not they're in a union. Even in a non-union workplace, employees who act together on workplace issues by, say, for example, meeting with a manager to lobby for better benefits or having a group discussion about the company's safety record are protected from any kind of employer retaliation. Any activity is concerted only if it involves more than one employee's concerns. For example, an employee who complains about her own performance evaluation is not taking concerted action. But an employee who complains after consulting with or on behalf of coworkers that the company's performance evaluation system unfairly penalizes employees who speak up in safety meetings is engaged in a concerted action. As the NLRB puts it, quote, personal gripes, end quote, are not protected. Even if employees are acting in a clearly concerted way, they won't be protected if they cross the line from constructive behavior to malicious or reckless actions. Employees who reveal company trade secrets, for example, or make threats of violent behavior, 
will not have any recourse if they are fired for these activities. Recently, the NLRB has shown great interest in applying these protections to online employee posts and comments. Let me give you a few examples. An employee was having a dispute with a coworker about job performance, staffing levels, and how well the employer, a nonprofit that provided services to the public, was serving its clients. In a Facebook post, the employee asked coworkers for their input on the issues, and several responded to the online comments. All were fired because of the online conversation. The NLRB found that they were engaged in protected concerted activity, even though some of the comments were sarcastic and even included some profanity. Because they were still discussing working-related conditions in advance of a meeting with management, that is considered protected. An employee made disparaging comments about a supervisor on Facebook, and a number of co-workers all chimed in. The employee had been denied union representation to help her in responding to a customer complaint, while the NRIB found that the employee's comments were protected concerted activity. While in a lunch break following a dispute with a supervisor, an employee updated her Facebook status to an expletive and the name of the employer's home improvement chain. Several co-workers, quote, liked her status. She later posted that the employer did not appreciate its employees, but no co-workers responded to that line. She was fired for the posts. The NLRB found that she was not engaged in concerted activity because she was neither acting on behalf of other employees, nor was she seeking their input or support to turn her complaint into a group action. Instead, the NLRB found she was airing a, quote, personal gripe, which was not protected. Employees are often protected if they are discussing employer policies or practices that, you know, say, apply broadly overall. But protection is also more likely if employees are having an online discussion to prepare to discuss issues with management. The more personal the post, for example, calling a supervisor names, the less likely the employee is protected. On the other hand, though, even if a post includes expletives and name-calling, it might still be protected if it is a complaint responded to by the employees about practices employees see as unfair or unwarranted. If you're going to speak ill of your employer's performance, be sure to do it in the context of a protected concerted activity. There are much better ways this physician could have engaged his leadership with his concerns that probably would more likely have made a difference. If they did not, then he could have taken his concerns to an attorney as a whistleblower and shielded himself from all the consequences of that by those umbrella protections. However, just mouthing off, though being done with the most altruistic motives, can still lead to getting fired. If you have issues with PPE, screening, and patient care, go to your administration as a team. You're protected. According to a former president of the AMA, if you still don't get what you and your patients need, you could always form a union. Me? I don't have a personal social media presence because I was told 12 years ago that having a page on Facebook was career suicide. Therefore, that personal policy has kept me from trouble on a number of occasions. I still want to have a voice. I still want to be heard. So, I do a podcast. This is the part in the podcast where I get to talk about something that I like and something that I don't like. First, let's talk about something that I like. Well, as I was browsing across some Netflix old movies, I just wanted to kind of find an old movie just to kind of maybe be a little nostalgic, look back on something, maybe even see an actor before they were famous. Well, I came across a movie, Taxi Driver, directed by Martin Scorsese. This is a movie that takes place around 1976. It's considered an American psychological drama, and it was written by Paul Schrader. 
lots of stars in it. Robert De Niro, Jodie Foster, Sybil Shepard. It was set in a decaying and morally bankrupt New York City following the Vietnam War. The film tells the story of Travis Bickle, played by De Niro, a lonely taxi driver who descends into insanity as he plots to assassinate both the presidential candidate for whom the woman he is infatuated with is working. And, by the way, he just also wanted to take out a pimp of an underage prostitute, played by Jodie Foster, that he actually befriends. Based on that description, it doesn't sound like much, but this movie deals with PTSD, Vietnam War veteran existentialism, and a push and pull between being a warrior to defend the vulnerable and a new kind of masculinity of the mid-1970s. Lots of lessons apply to our warriors returning home from Iraq, Syria, and Afghanistan. This was a winner of four Academy Awards and loaded with some of today's movie legends before they were famous. Definitely worth a watch. Now, something I don't like. Right now, with the whole COVID-19 thing, I do not like being able to not have access to take care of all of my patients. Of course, during these uncertain times, trade-offs had to be made, and now all of my time is spent caring for patients in the intensive care unit. But after five weeks of this, I'm to the point that I'm starting to lose sleep worrying about my other patients. These are the patients that I had just started to do a workup for, say, a new lung nodule for potential cancer, or my emphysema patients hoping to have her endobronchial valves placed soon. Then there is my stoic 49-year-old barber with debilitating sarcoidosis that never gives me the whole truth until I can pull it from him with humor and empathy. I miss seeing my patients face-to-face, -face, seeing and interpreting their micro-expressions that give me hints into what they are really thinking and really feeling. Then leading to a more productive dialogue and treatment plan. I miss the looks in their faces when their PFTs improve after treatment, or the strong handshakes and the one-armed hugs from an appreciative husband whose wife can sing again after dilating her subglottic stenosis. Look, I know that my ICU patients need me now more than ever, but having an entire population of patients that I don't have access to take care of anymore when they need the care is bothering me as well. Look, my system is doing all that they reasonably can for these patients with virtual visits, nurse check-in calls, and whatnot. But it's just so very different when I can see the tension in their eyes, hear the flow of air through their lungs, or witness the embarrassed smiles when my nurse tells them how pretty their outfit is. I'm looking forward to the time that all of our patients can get the care that they need. So first, to my patients, thank you for staying at home, washing your hands and flattening the curve. For those patients listening, I know it's hard, but I promise that as soon as circumstances permit, we'll give you the care that you need. Before I leave you with some words of inspiration, I want to thank you for your support. The Spiral Podcast was recently listed as the number one podcast on LinkedIn and is climbing the charts on Apple Podcasts as well. We receive no funding. I have no conflicts of interest. I simply do it as a labor of love. So keep listening from wherever you get your podcast and please give us a five-star rating as it helps us move up the search results. Oh, tell your friends how to subscribe too. Now, there are some people in this life that you may have thought of that you would love to meet. Maybe an author, a singer, or a pillar in your field. One of the people I'd like to meet in person is a physician, author, and mountaineer. His name is Dr. Henry Colt. He's a professor emeritus from pulmonary critical care medicine at the University of California in Irvine. Dr. Colt is an internationally recognized authority in pulmonary endoscopic procedures. 
He lectures internationally on the use of novel endoscopic and optical surgical technologies, including laser resection and thoracoscopy, as well as on palliative care treatments. He's certified in medical ethics and addresses religion, philosophy, psychology, ethics, humanitarian service, and palliative end-of-life care in his seminars. He has a blog on the International Bronchoscopy website called Colts Corner. Just look it up. All you got to do is go to Google, type in Colts Corner. He'll be right there. It's worth a read. Very, very insightful. Recently, a blog post that he wrote on April 10th both saddened and encouraged me. And I'd like to take a minute and share it with my listeners here on the Spiral Podcast. The blog post is entitled, Short Circuit. He begins. As I write this note, my mother is dying in a hospital bed in southern France. She is alone. Visitors are not allowed. My elderly father is quarantined in his home, an ancient four-story house that dates almost to the Middle Ages. In two months, they would have celebrated their 65th wedding anniversary. But that is not to be. There are no doctors or nurses huddled around my mother's bed. No family or friends, no palliative care specialists or counselors who know what to say when it's the end. When no one can really say goodbye, and the last communication is a final I love you from my father transmitted to her, maybe, through the medical ward secretary. Decades of my own experience with death and dying taught me many things, not the least of which is to live in the now, to cherish each and every moment because you never know if it may be your last. I try to imagine that somewhere there is a nurse or maybe a young intern who will go to my mother's bedside just to be there. I remember sitting with teenagers at the end of their lives and with grandparents who prayed for death to release them from the pain of metastatic cancer. I remember saying, I'll see you in the morning to that favorite patient of mine and being called after midnight with the news that he just didn't make it. Medicine is, I think, the most noble of all professions. It is a profession based on trust and love and generosity and grace. It is most noble when the ego is removed from all considerations, when one person sits with another and waits, and waits, until transition occurs, and a tear flows, even though one may barely know the patient's name. I hope my mother has someone like that when the moment comes, behind closed doors, with masks and gowns and whatever else they need to wear. I know she will, in fact. I'm sure of it. Stars. 